Hello guys, welcome back to my channel. Please subscribe and leave a like if you can. It really helps. So, the magic of Marie Laveau. This will be quite a journey we're about to take. And it won't all be recorded like this. I do plan on something quite special at the end. Fingers crossed, all goes to plan. But we do have to get there, don't we? So, shall we begin? Marie Laveau was no myth, no legend. She was a free woman, a mother, a healer, and a devoted Catholic, but also a business woman. Before I continue, viewer discretion is advised when listening to this. Some viewers may find some of this content is triggering, upsetting, and may not wish to listen. Please do not listen if you think you will be upset or triggered, or if it will offend you in any way. We will have to speak about slavery, because it's rooted, where she comes from, is, is rooted in that. So do understand, I mean no disrespect at all. I just want to tell it as it is. So please do not listen if you will be upset triggered or offended by any of this. Just turn it off. Thank you. So, she was indeed very real. And not just that. Her gravesite is the second most visited gravesite. Mm -hmm. Guess who comes first? Elvis Presley. The king of rock and roll. But she's second. Think about that. That's massive. There's also been many ghost stories regarding seeing her spirit. One in particular was a man. And he went into the chemist. This was the 1930s, I believe. He went into what we know as a chemist, a pharmaceutical store. And a woman appeared behind him. The person behind the counter went drip white and disappeared in the back. And he turned and looked at the woman. And she said, do you know who I am? Of course, he replied, no, I'm sorry, I don't. Upon this. The spirit slapped him across the face, laughed out loud, and vanished, flying through the walls back to the gravesite. The person behind the counter came out and explained to the man, you've just been slapped by the queen of voodoo, Marie Lavu. And there are many stories about her ghost. 
it's also true and important to recognise that she's definitely had an influence on tourist attraction. There's many out there that take her name on and practice under her name. So she made a very big impression even now. You know, there are many claims of students or people that knew her, etc. Newspapers from 1909 are very much worth looking at if you're interested and want to read through because they have some extremely odd articles in there that we probably could relate to today. Wild orgies, sacrificing black cats, demonising her voodoo. Those newspapers back then brought these fantastical ideas, just like TV and newspapers do now. And we know they do, so why wouldn't they back then? It's also very important, you understand. She never, not once, had a photo taken, ever. And I hope you realise that this has something to do with the fact that some believe it takes the soul. Did she believe that? We don't know. But it's important to mention that she never had her photo taken. She never had her image sketched. No one knows what she really looks like. It is but an image perceived to be of her. No one knows the truth except for them that knew her and her herself because there is no images to go back on at all. It is believed, through these interviews and people that did know her, she was a tall, beautiful woman with curly hair to her shoulders, and she never wore headdresses at all. She would never wear an headdress, they said. If you look at court appearances back in the day, Hoodoo conjuration is mentioned in some of these very old articles and it's very useful to look into that when you're learning about Marie Laveau, if you're interested. This is why I suggested newspapers from 1909 because you'll find many. La Belle de Nouvelle Orleans of course is a book that's definitely worth a read. <laughs> So she was an hairdresser, it is believed, and she was extremely intelligent. She aided a lot of people too. She helped many. But if we want to know her, then we must know about her life, her past, her parents. Marie Laveau's great-grandmother was said as a child that she was sold in slavery sent to America on a slave ship. As a result of this, Marie Laveau became a great leader of a new religion. So something good came out of that at least. Marie's great-grandma was called Marguerite. Marguerite had a daughter called Catherine. Catherine was obviously in America. Um, Marie's grandmother 
Now, she gave birth to a daughter. So, Catherine is Mar um, Marie Laveau's grandmother. And she gave birth to a daughter who she called Marguerite again to be named after the great granddaughter. And this is Marie Laveau's mother. It's important to understand back then, women were viewed as nothing more than property and sexual abuse and sexual advancements. And, well, you can imagine, was very much everywhere and um, it was not very nice. Masters raped their slave women and they just thought they had the right. They just thought that was the way. And it's very wrong, but it happened. Catherine was 13 years old when she herself gave birth to Marguerite, Marie's mother. Marguerite also had her first child at 13 years old. And all children were born in bondage and they would be sold and separated by the unsympathetic, of course. Trauma is extremely evident uh, in Marie Laveau's life from her past. And the reason we have to tell the story of the trauma is because we wouldn't have what we have today without that trauma back then. Though it's sad, it's just the facts. It's just what happened. 1795, Catherine paid $600 for her freedom and took Henry as her surname. She became successful and she bought her own home and her own land. Now, 1790, so this is before, Catherine's daughter Marguerite was freed by her owner. She did have children, of course, and it's important to understand that Marie Laveau's father was completely different to the other children. Now, she was a child of Charles Laveau, a businessman that her mother had a relationship with. Marie Catherine Laveau was born September the 10th, 1801. And it's important to understand that Charles Lover was not on a birth certificate or or even on a when she was baptized. She he later came forward, obviously, and told the story that he indeed was her father, but he wouldn't accept it at first. Um, it wasn't until a later date that he came forth and there's many interviews where he does state he is her father however there was many stories regarding Marie Laveau's father he was documented as a wealthy white man who owned plants when I say plants I mean plantations this is not true it's not the case, unfortunately. Yes, he was a very successful man in real estate, in the slave trade, but he wasn't white either. Six days after her birth, Father Antoine 
baptised Marie Laveau as a Catholic at St. Louis's Cathedral in New Orleans. Her grandmother, Catherine, took on the role of her godmother. Her godfather was a Spanish man. He was apparently the go-to for having godfathers back then. There were certain people who'd be assigned and he was one of the go-to. It took 15 years to find Marie Laveau's records and the myth of her being almost 100 years old at her death is nothing but a myth. 79 was the age and she was not born Haitian in Haiti. She was born in New Orleans. It's believed that she did live with her grandmother at a childhood, um, a childhood cottage but there's nothing that factualises this. There's no facts really on um, when she was younger at all on where she lived or, or what she did. But it's just a belief that she was brought up there. August 4th, 1819, at the young age of 17, she married a man called Jacques Perry, a carpenter by trade. It is stated she got married at St. Louis's Cathedral, and Anton, the father, and a lawyer were standing as witnesses. However, in truth, they're not accurate records either. It said the famous hoop earrings that she wears were a wedding gift from her father. But there are no records. That's the issue. These Words I am reading are words of spoken talk. They are Chinese whispers. Her marriage is definitely there. She did wed, but not under those same circumstances with those people. Now, there are other records for Marie Laveau, the same church. These records indicate a daughter, Marie-Angelée Perry, November the 27th, 1822, was baptised in that very church. Felicie, Felicite Paris, another daughter, baptised November the 17th, 1824. Both legitimate daughters are Marie Laveau and Paris. Marie would have been born, I do believe, she would have had her first child at 16 years old, which is two years prior to her marriage to Jacques Paris. However, the problem is what became of the daughters is unknown. This could be because funeral records um, from certain years, 1825 to 1829, they've been lost uh, through the cathedral. You can't find them anywhere. So, and back then... You know, it was said that to live 29 years of age was good. So it's unknown. We don't know. We know that the baptised paperwork said the both daughters were baptised. We know that her first child she had at 16, which was two years prior to her, almost two years, not quite, but almost. She was still 17 when she married, but prior to her being married and there are no records after this but they were baptised at that church now in 1824 
Jack Perry disappeared. Presumed deceased, though. There's never been any document of his death or anything to support that he died. He's actually never been located. He just disappeared. There are many rumours regarding his death, of course. Whatever the case may be, Marie Laveau, she gained official documents as Laveau Perry, the widow Paris, after Jacques' disappearance. It was believed that Marie then became the hairdresser after Jacques disappeared. And his name is Jacques Perry, but it is pronounced Jacques Perry. Although just an hairdresser, she maintained a high-class clientele. And it is believed that through this clientele, she learned secrets of the elites as women would share their secrets with her. I mean, that makes sense though, doesn't it? Think about it. People do that today still in salons and things. So it does make sense. It's said though that the clients were very confident in giving her secrets. She held her confidentiality very well. But it's believed that Marie Laveau took notes of the secrets and filed away the information for a rainy day. She was not listed in his census as practising this profession, but if you speak to people that knew her, it was widely believed this is what she did. And of course, people leave her gifts today that are mirrors, combs, um, fasteners for the air, makeup, things that are associated with hairdressers and such. So it is believed that is what she did. And why not store that information away for a rainy day? Clearly she would need it sometime. I don't want to let these go on too long, so I'm going to leave it here. This is the very first part. There are many parts to come and many truths to be looked at. Thank you for listening. I truly appreciate it and many blessings. Hi guys, welcome back to my channel. Please subscribe and leave a like because it really helps if you can. Also, this is continuation of Marie Laveau, so viewer discretion is advised. Some people may find this content triggering, upsetting and disturbing. Please do not listen if you are easily triggered with historical past events. We do talk about slavery because it's important. So if this is something that you do not wish to listen to, please turn it off. Do not listen. Thank you. So we just got to the part where I explained about her being an hairdresser and the fact that gifts are still lame for today associated with hairdressing. So two years after Jacques Perry disappeared, she had a brief relationship with a man who served in the 1815 war. He was an ordnance officer in the Battle of New Orleans. It was illegal back then, by the way, for interracial marriages. Um, legend says Marie and Christophe had 15 children together. That's not true at all. They had seven children from 1827 to 1838. Only two of the girls survived to adulthood. The rest, no longer. Marie... Philemon became Marie Laveau's successor in the New Orleans voodoo. Laveau, voodoo, voodoo Laveau. 
And she also was Marie Laveau II. That's what she was known as. She had another name, which I quite like, this name. Madame La Gendre. Love it. Beautiful name. Christophe died June 26, 1855. And when he died, it is said that Marie turned to the church even more than she'd ever done before for comfort. She absolutely increased her devotion to the Catholic Church. Absolutely. She also brought in new followers for that Catholic Church too. Marie and Christophe, they were slave owners. This is a fact. Even after the new law passed to make slavery illegal in New Orleans, trafficking sort of increased. We see this today, don't we? You know, they say it's no longer trafficking, but it is, it's everywhere. If you think about it, human trafficking is everywhere. It's just different, but it's definitely still present. And it's definitely hits the younger females more than anything. Marie Laveau bore witness to a very difficult time in history. Though she was born a free woman, she still had to live and abide by the Louisiana Black Code, which is just, wow. And she dealt with slaves. There are zero documented records that she treated her slaves bad. There was gossip, there was speculation, but there are zero records that state that she ever did any harm to her slaves. The Code Noir was enacted in 1724 and was based on earlier codes of French Caribbean colonies. The code limited freedom. Slave owners were forced to baptise their slaves in the Catholic Church so that this would mean they would have to follow the Catholic ways. They didn't have no choice. They had no choice about it whatsoever. They were forced to do it. Sundays was allowed for worship. You could have it off on Sunday because you had to go and worship. That was nice of them, weren't it? Slaves were allowed to marry... Um, it was the way... The way that it is, it's very hard to, to sort of explain, but they were allowed to marry separation of families. They they could marry, but it would have to be with the same... It's a different word they're using, but they would marry, it'd have to be with the same sort of people, if you understand what I mean. Um, they still kept that quite strict, which I think is very wrong. Um Apparently, this new code stated that families were no longer going to be separated once they were married and together, um, and slave owners were not allowed to beat slaves severely or kill them. The law stated that slaves could report to the police if they were unfairly treated, and many did not. The ones that were unfairly treated usually ran away. However, it's important to note again, there is nothing that states Marie Laveau ever hurt any of her slaves there is no records and there is records of where they went and when they went in 1811 Marie Laveau was around 10 years old and Louisiana was still the territory of New Orleans the German coast uprising was the largest slave revolt in American history this occurred 30 miles roughly outside of the city that very same year Men rose up regarding the harsh conditions of the sugar plantations, even though they should have been protected under that Louisiana Black Code. They should have been protected under the, under the Noir. Between 200 and 500 men armed with hand tools participated in the sugar plantation marches towards New Orleans. Along the way, 
They burnt plantation houses, sugar houses, crops, things like that. It's really important, and I'm going to state this because it's the facts, only two white men ended up dying in that uprising. Yet, on the other side, a hundred of the uprising party were slaughtered, and they were even beheaded as well. Not only did they behead them, which is absolutely disgusting, but they displayed them. They displayed them purposely to discourage and intimidate the others. Man, what they went through, I can't even begin to imagine. In 1863, Lincoln's um, Emancipation Proclamation had theoretically abolished slavery. It was officially abolished by the state constitutionists in 1864 during the American Civil War. For most of Marie Laveau's life, slavery was just so prominent. It was wherever she went. It was common for free people of colour to own slaves. And almost all New Orleans of means did buy slaves and allowed them to work out there elsewhere. And when they worked elsewhere, they would collect a percentage of the wages, obviously, because they had the rights not. <sighs> Makes me so angry. Others were purchased as household servants. The issue of status regarding Marie Laveau being a slave owner is actually unknown. And it's possible that all she witnessed, especially the uprising, impacted her to adulthood. I mean, it would impact you, wouldn't it? There's no evidence that Marie Laveau was involved in the slave trade prior to her relationship with Christophe. Very important to understand. There is evidence in the archives um, that he was always involved in buying and selling of slaves prior to Marie Laveau. So he was always in that industry. She was not until she actually was with Christophe. That's very important to understand. He was French and the French embraced slave ownership as part of their culture. Marie and Christophe, um, they bought, it said that they bought and sold, I think it was eight slaves in total throughout the life. There's no real reports or articles to tell how they treated their slaves. The rumours um, that Marie was helping to free slaves. Though oral history Marie is known to aid slaves, provide them with charms to prevent them on their journeys to freedom. Christophe, in 1854, sold his final slave, and Marie was not involved in any slave trading after this or after his death in 1855. Again, very important to note. Voodoo is science. It symbols codes, and it signifies... Um, a very embedded tradition of various codes as well. Charles Raphael, born in 1868, actually described an altar that Marie had in her front room that he'd witnessed, and it had items on it like good luck charms, money-making charms, um, husband-holding charms. She also had a statue of St. Peter and St. Moron. Now, these safe houses that they designed for slaves, they would have certain things set up, set up that a slave would recognise that place as safety. It was a signifier, so it was known as a safe place. There would be a password, a call, um, and then a response, or recording knocks on doors as well. 
but statues and symbols were very, very prominent for safe houses. Particular quilts would be embroidered as well, but they'd be embroidered bearing special designs. And these objects would have been very easily masked with voodoo. You could mask all this thing into voodoo. So let's go on the fact that she had St. Moron. And the St. Moron screams the loudest about her saving slaves because St. Moron is a patriot saint of runaway slaves. Saints are usually paired according to the purpose. So the saints benefit from each other's power and then the petitioner gets that power too. So St. Peter was also Papa Legua, holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Papa Legua, well, St. Peter holds the keys to heaven and Papa Legua holds the keys to the spirit world. Same, just a bit different. These are used when obstacles are in need of removal, roads that need to be opened, secrets that need to be kept under lock and key. The keys also signify the ability to unlock the key to slavery. St. Peter holds the keys to heaven, referred to as freedom in some places like Canada. And St. Maroon, she provides the protection on the freedom train. So just from looking at that altar, can you not see what I'm saying? It's not very hard to understand. It's probably true that Marie Laveau helped slaves. You also have to understand that Christophe could have been involved with helping the slaves become free. The problem is, Christophe already dealt in slavery before Marie Laveau. When Marie Laveau got with Christophe, she'd never dealt in that. However, if they had to maintain appearances because of status, the were I status, in order to maintain that appearance, they would have to buy and sell slaves, regardless of Marie helping them. And this is the belief why they only had the eight slaves their whole lives and they, they are known to, to, to be sold on and, and go on and live the life. No harm ever came to them. So it's really important to understand that the fact they had slaves in their home, there's a good chance that was a cover-up because then they could send other slaves to get other slaves and such and such. And if Christoph stopped in that slave industry all of a sudden, then the eyes would have definitely been full on Marie Laveau for being um, a person of helping slaves get away, because it is believed that they did have an actual tunnel underground where they used to escort them out. So it was more seen as a cover-up later on. The fact that they still had, had slaves in their home and sold them, it it's believed it was a cover-up because he couldn't just stop when he met Marie. It would look extremely dodgy and they would definitely be knocking on her door after seeing altars like that, thinking, yep, yeah, I know what you're doing. <laughs> you know, we have to look at it like that. It, you can't just stop something you've done all that time because it would bring speculation upon you. So it's possible it was just nothing but a cover-up and that she was freeing slaves. I'm going to leave this episode here. I don't want them too long, as I have said. Thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate it and many blessings. Hi, guys. Welcome back to my channel and Happy New Year to you all. I do hope you have a blessed New Year and that you can carry on and bring abundance and happiness into your home and your life. 
third part of Marie Laveau, we are looking into uh, hairdressing skills. So, Marie had a lot of information regarding high-class people and the luxury homes that had tainted blood, um, well-noted family names that had secrets. But she didn't bribe. She didn't tell anyone. She was very confidential. She kept it all very confidential. June the 21st, 1821, and this is according to the legend, Marie Laveau became an hairdresser after the presumed death of her husband, Jacques Paris. And as I've said, there is no records, but what's important is that it was very common to become an hairdresser. It was the occupation at the time that many would choose, so it does not seem far-fetched that she possibly went into this trade. The Louisiana's Writers Project had some people in it that did interviews stating they remembered her as an hairdresser. Theresa Kavanagh, born around 1860, said Marie Laveau called herself an hairdresser and that is how she got in the good graces of the high-class families. Marie Washington, mm, born in 1863, remembered Marie as some kind of hairdresser and seamstress sewing, basically, but that was more in the early days. Apparently, she was very equipped in um, fooling people and becoming an hairdresser gave her privilege to rub shoulders in the most finest of families. She was, after all, invited into their homes and she was said to possibly even pay off for any black servants that they had, any code servants they had. Um, not in a way that would release them from their bindings, but to become her mole in the household. Think about that. This gave her all the access to the inside information and the knowledge, which would lead to Marie going to their house, being their hairdresser, and sort of coaxing the women to confessing their problems to Marie. And it gave her an edge with the conjuring and the voodoo work. If you think about it, it's kind of like Marie paid the servants to give her information so that when she went to do her hairdressing, she already had some kind of knowledge of what was going on in the house. And the more knowledge she got, the better she would become at getting them to confess. The more confessions that she got, the better her conjuring work would become. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it, when you think about it that way, rather than her knowing things without being told information that we can actually understand and we can sit and say, yeah, I can, I can really see that happening. In fact, I'm pretty sure, you know, some places it's still done like that. So it does make sense. Of course, to her clients, she would absolutely get them to spill the darkest secrets and it would somewhat, to them, they would see Maria as being somewhat gifted and able to understand 
just what they were going through, to bring it forward out of them, then keep it confidential. She knew who was cheating with who, whose babies were actually whose, but she kept all the secrets. And they, of course, in return, knew she had the keys to every scandal, every high-class secret in that circle, that society. Marie knew. She absolutely knew. Whether or not this is true, um, knowledge does indeed give perception of power for sure. It always has. Um, her premonitions did all near enough come true. The paths she advised to others were generally always the wisest. And this is how she built a huge clientele of upper class and the prestige. Myths around hairdressing and voodoo, such as never throwing a comb away with your hair left in it. That is so true, never do that. Hair should be burnt, never leave your hair lying around, not even one. Just, just don't, it's got your DNA on it, especially if it's come from the bulb, from the follicle. That's definite DNA. Um... Apparently, if a bird were to collect the air and weave it into their nest, the person would have an headache for as long as it was being woven in the nest. So it was custom to burn a client's air that was cut back then. A voodooist could read how the hair burned and tell the clients what was to come. When the hair burns light and bright, it means a long, happy life is to be had. And when the hair sort of fails to catch fire or burns slow and dull. It represents illness or death being the inevitable. That makes sense too. I mean, even in just a divination perspective, it is what you would actually say comes from uh, divination. You know, when something's bright and vibrant, yeah, means more or whatever. And when something's dull, it means less. It's kind of common sense that now it wasn't back then. Some people, of course, they referred to her as a con woman rather than a cunning woman. It's important to understand that's a matter of perception. It's everybody's different and people criticise regardless, don't they? So, you know, however it was, she collected info and networked like any strong independent businesswoman would. She was very clever at showing up in places. She would be remembered for those particular places because of the places that she chose. So she knew what she was doing. Her business side grew through word of mouth. So sink rooms, courthouses, marketplaces were regular places she would grace. Her customers were satisfied, leading to great results. So, if the truth about how she managed her business affairs were put in the local papers and the tabloids, rather than portraying her as a voodoo priestess um, and questioning her ability and portraying her as some sort of evil blah, 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 would it have ever come into question? The tabloids, yet again, blowing things out of proportion. If it was her business skills that were reported in the newspaper rather than it all being put down to evil craft, it would make a massive difference, wouldn't it? You know, the tabloids wouldn't be the same, would they? They'd have a completely different article, and that's just fact. Um, so we do tend to assume she grew up in the cottage in which her grandmother 
had any it's you know there's not really much about it but it is a presumption so the new orleans republican 1873 did write an article regarding marie laveau's cottage um the childhood home was 152 saint anne street and that remained a primary residence until her death um, in 1881. The cottage housed most of the Lovell family for nearly 100 years. It was from 1798 to 1897. Her grandmother, Marguerite Henry, purchased the lot in 1798. Um, and it was set back off the street. Um... It was kind of a square and it was a one-storey structure, but it had four outbuildings. One of the outbuildings itself was sort of one and a half storeys high. This meaning there was plenty of space for someone to take residence or stay in that area if they actually needed to. The Louisiana's Writers Project um interviews that were conducted they stated that Marie allowed many Choctaw women to camp out in her backyard provided shelter for slaves who needed a safe place. Marie's grandmother had that house built as a result of her own blood sweat and tears. Hard work really hard work she paid for it all to be built from her hard work. Upon her death the house went into probate and a resident in good standing came forward claiming the estate had hoed him due to a lingering debt. Upon her death and them discovering that this debt was still there, Marie and a few of the family members made the decision to put the house up for auction. It was then purchased by Christian Glabion, who allowed Marie's family to continue living there. The original structure is long gone, unfortunately. It's not there anymore. It's no longer standing. Um, there are, there's, there is something else. We'll get into that in a minute. But St Anne Street is just important um, because it helps us understand how she grew up. Descriptions of her home have said to give up clues of her conjuring and her practice. And the site itself has many legends and tales Legends and tales and myths are far more exciting than the actual reality, though, aren't they? Let's be fair. George William Knott, 1869-1946, to promoted a magical version of how the house came to be lived in by the voodoo queen. So, the story goes, a man was in some real legal trouble, and he was from a good-standing family. The evidence against him was very strong. So his father went to Marie Laveau for help, obviously promising Marie a good reward if she would get his son out of trouble completely. And as the story goes as legend, and it's not real, this is legend, myth, it is just a story. On the day of the, the court day of the young man, Marie entered the St. Louis Cathedral at dawn. She knelt at the altar rail for several hours with three guinea peppers in her mouth. Then she crept in the cabal den next to 
it was next door and it was like under and she deposited these peppers under the judge's chair remember the room next to the church was generally where judgment took place because the church were very involved as well back then so she basically spat the peppers under the judge's chair the young man was of course dismissed and as promised the father paid marie by handing her the cottage on saint anne's street and it's almost adjacent to the conga square she lived there until her death. That is just a story. It is believed, of course, that it was Christoph that let them stay there. Um, but that's just how legends go. They are created and they are fascinating. Who knows, maybe it was true. We can't really say, but according to records, Christoph bought it and let them live there. 1873, and this was eight years before her death, the New Orleans Republican printed a description of the inside of the house and it does kind of match the people that spoke about it for word of mouth. It, it matches their descriptions. The fact that workers had a private area for conjuring away from prying eyes. This is actually very true. We have... Because... So in what I do as well, we have altars everywhere. We have many altars. But... Our actual working altar is not allowed to be shared. We cannot share it. So my altar changes all the time because I have a working altar, but I have general altars. The general altars are used for everyday things. My working altar, as it's very particular to where it needs, and it, it does not, I don't show it because that would then contaminate it, if if you understand Um so a real area, working area, altar, spell area, conjuring area, you would never share. You wouldn't, you just wouldn't. And there's many whispers, obviously, of hidden rooms behind curtains or beads, you know, and the fact that she had hidden rooms all over laundry mats in New Orleans. There's loads of whispers like that. And it wasn't uncommon for workers to have a Catholic appearing altar in the front of the house where everybody could see, but out of the way in the back, there would be a working conjuring altar. And working altars are not pretty. They would contain animal parts, jars of unknown potions. Um, you know, they would, there'd be urine probably, there'd be sweat, there'd be hair, just very odd things, just... You know, you can imagine they would have, but it was, it was needed. You know, it was, it was just how it is. It's standard practice to keep spell work out of sight. So no energies can interfere. The imaginations of people that don't really know much about conjuring though can absolutely run away with them. Hence the description. It was surprising that it had been put in quite, to word of mouth because you expect them to exaggerate on it don't you you know it was scantily furnished a few chairs um it had an old table and it did have a door that was covered by a beaded curtain that was attached to that room and it was closed and it is believed that nobody was allowed in that room nobody at all except for maria herself of course 
Um, it had a picture of water as well. For some reason that was important. But then they go into say how it was embedded with supernatural powers and entities. And don't forget the evil spirits they're always about. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? <laughs> so... 1020 St Anne Street actually now only mocks the original site because the actual numbers, it's not, you know, it's not right now, it's not there. So it's just a mock of the original home. The original Lavu cottage was torn down in 1903. A new structure was built over the same foundations. And the Paranormal Society researchers believe that the energy of Maria and her family and those who resided, the residual of conjurings, still reside at that location. And that's why it's featured on haunted tours in New Orleans. And there are also stories told of Marie Laveau's ghost walking down St Anne's Street, wearing a long white dress and a white tignon tied in several points to signify a crown. I'm not saying people may not see her like that, because I do think if we see things, a lot of it can be to do with our mind, and I think we can put our own perception on what we're seeing, even if it's not what someone else sees, and we're still like, that's what I saw. Because I think things can appear to us very differently than they can to another person because a lot of it has to do with our mind. But we do know, remember, from the beginning, she wouldn't have worn a tin young as such. Not many people said she ever did. So, I don't know. It's um, interesting, but I guess people who perceive her that way may see her that way as a spirit. You know, our mind's a fascinating thing. It can do a lot of things and make us see things and stuff, um, especially when we're feeling different emotions. I'm not saying that it's not a ghost either. That's not what I'm saying. It could absolutely be a spirit. I'm just saying, remember that we don't know from what's being told of Marie Laveau. She didn't actually wear that. Um, and her hair was to her shoulders and curly. So I don't know. Make of it what you will. I'm going to leave this part here because we've already got onto the 19 minute mark. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Please leave a like. And don't forget to subscribe. Many blessings. Hello everyone. Welcome back to my channel. Thanks for clicking. Please leave a like and subscribe. It really helps. Marie Laveau. Now we're on to sort of the fourth part now I guess. And we're looking at her as a devout Catholic. But we're also going to go on to the saffron scourge as well um this is not so bad this part definitely easier than the other ones it's not as dreadful but viewer uh, viewer listen discretion is advised only listen if you're not going to be triggered or affected by any of what i am telling because it is going to bring in the yellow fever and such and some people can find that distressing i personally love history and I love knowing about it. So, you know, if you want to learn about things like that, it's great. But listener discretion is advice. I won't say viewers because I don't really put anything on to view, do I? 
that would be daft. <laughs> so Marie was known to have such a warm heart. She was very tender in nature. She never would refuse a summons from a suffering, no matter how bad or how dangerous the disease or the person was said to be. She laboured faithfully and earned long life friends. During the cholera and the yellow fever epidemics, she proved herself to be a noble woman, going from patient to patient, straight to the next and to the next and to the next, administering to each of their needs, saving many from death. June 21st, 1821, an article wrote about Marie and her work, um, known by the Catholics as Corporal Works of Mercy, Charitable actions, the fact that she was helping neighbours, she was feeding the hungry, giving drink to those that needed drink, that were thirsty, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless and visiting the sick, burying the dead and even visiting the imprisoned. Those principles derived from the teachings of Jesus. Basically, treat others as if they were Christ in disguise. And Marie Laveau lived in accordance of the works of mercy. She lived her life in full service to her community and she engaged in core principles in her life's work. She's absolutely on record for nursing patients through the yellow fever, through the cholera, um, during the city's epidemics. And she provided food housing for the poor, she sponsored education for the children and even posted bond for women accused of petty crimes. She visited condemned prisoners. She set up altars inside those prisons and she prayed with them, especially during their final hours. She also offered the use of family tombs. Yeah, um... I can't remember, I think it's one of the burial sites anyway, just one alone. Um, she has strangers there because they couldn't afford a burial site. Um, and there are 84 people at the site one. There's 84 people buried. They're at rest there in that tomb. But only 25 of those buried there, verified, are assumed to be family members. The rest that are buried there are people that she allowed to be buried there because they had nowhere else. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that's quite heartwarming, isn't it? Can you, I mean, it's not done so much now. It's kept for family. But even back then, when you think about it, um, not having somewhere to place your family member's soul to rest and she gave them that. There's 84 people buried in a Laveau tomb. Only 25 of them are family or at least reported to be family members. I think that's pretty awesome. I just, I'm sorry, I just do. I really do. Um, Father Antoine, by the way, he also sort of went about the workings with Marie. He was very charitable and he did the work along the side of the Catholic Church. You know, he followed her and... He remembered her very well and he definitely bonded with Marie. Um, Father Pierre Antoine, that's his name. And, I mean, they go back as well. He and Marie, they ministered together to the sick and the incarcerated. 
you know, he shared her dedication, but their relationship began when Marie was baptised by him. He baptised her. It was an important figure in her life and he also married her. You know, we don't, it's not often we get that where the same um, priest or vicar is there throughout the life, actually. It's, around here, it's quite rare anyway. Maybe in other parts, it's not so rare, but it, but it is here. He likely did school Marie, though, in the principles of the Catholic faith. You know, they even had a deal that Marie could do ritual work behind the church every Sunday. So after Mass, on a Sunday in St. Anthony's Garden, Marie performed light rituals behind the St. Louis Cathedral. She promised rituals, uh, rituals to her following, and obviously they would come to church for Mass. So the father agreed because at the end of the day he was getting more people in church attending mass. Now, other voodoo leaders discouraged their followers from going to a Catholic church. Marie entwined the two. And Father Antoine, he also did not mind this. They binded the two together. Um, I do believe that uh, Father Antoine was at St. Louis Cathedral for more than 40 years um, altogether. He did have a break in between, but his time there was more than 40 years, which is a long time. Though Marie was described as an extremely devout Catholic, she definitely likely had voodoo in her lineage, passed through the women in her family. This is what happens with hoodoo, voodoo, witchcraft, the real stuff. The real stuff is passed on from family to family. There are things, for example, that, I've got that I show very few people and, and they think I'm sure they think that they want to see it but trust me they don't you don't need to see it because it's family business if you get what I mean and that is the difference with the the real side of the witchcraft and the hoodoo and the voodoo is it is passed from family to family it is not shared publicly you might think it is you might be excited like oh wow look at this the real deal mm -mm. nope <laughs> it's just not it's not it's classed as family business it's not to be broadcast everywhere is it that it just wouldn't work like that would it she was extremely well conjured um in this kind of work so she could do conjuring work um she was no stranger though to also having to cloak that conjuring work so we have papa legbois um, Papa Legbo is the key opener. He is the one that must be invoked in a voodoo ritual before invoking any others because he is the path holder. He directs, he opens paths, he closes paths. But he was actually called, um, there was a few different games that, uh, names for him, but I do know that it was Papa Limba. Papa Limba, which, you know, is different. And Mardi Gras, which is a celebration that everybody knows, you will hear um, people calling Laba, Laba. You'll hear it in the Mardi Gras. Well, that's Papa Legba's actual part of his name and how he was called. And unfortunately, they shout this name and he is the opener of roads and he's conjured up and they shout this name and they don't actually realise what that name truly means. They don't know the roots of that name and how important it is. So that's something else to understand that when you hear something like that as well, maybe the person that's using it doesn't fully appreciate and understand where it's coming from because it's been changed over time. People have changed it over time and to them it may mean something completely different 
they may not have any idea what they're actually saying or they may have an idea of something new rather than what it actually is. So bear in mind when you see Mardi Gras and you hear that, that's Papa Legba. She was a very successful nurse, Marie. And I know when I say nurse, you think of the nurses that we see in hospitals and things. But this that wasn't the case back then, remember. There, there wasn't nurses like that. She would care. Um, she would nurse so many. And she would use her skill and her knowledge in order to make them better. As soon as she was called upon by the sick, she absolutely responded very promptly. And this gave her extreme popularity and good standing. And then, of course, you have the other side where it wasn't seen as being a healer, but she was seen as doing bad magic and they dreaded her. They feared her and she had unnatural skills, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you can read the Daily Piccolude in 1881 and that states 67 yellow summers arrived in New Orleans between the years. 1796 and 1905 and obviously this was called the yellow fever however it was also called yellow jack black vomit and the saffron scourge and this plagued the city and during this particular time no one knew how it spread no one had any idea so they would flee and the others would succumb to the illness and they were burned and they were buried thousands of people reportedly died apparently stacked one upon the other in cemeteries, the stench of death permeating the streets, and at some point people were dying faster than graves could be dug. This is where the saying comes, you'll be digging your own grave. It comes from the yellow fever from the saffron scourge, because people were dying faster than, than the graves could be dug, hence why we have, you'll be digging your own grave. If we take out these diseases, though, there are definitely reports out there that state without disease, New Orleans was reported as being unsanitary. It was littered. It had rats, roaches, dead animals. And sewerage was being put into the Mississippi River, and that was people's source of drinking water. So, obviously, disease spread. You know, New Orleans saw more than a fair share of diseases in addition to just the... Um, yellow fever there was uh, smallpox there was typhus there was tb cholera there, there was all that and then there's the swamps and the lakes and the heat the heat brings more mosquitoes and more mosquitoes brings out more bites and more spreading of diseases the saffron scourge though did not kill everyone many locals developed a resistance treatment for the disease included camphor around the neck, carrying garlic, full body soaks in vinegar, and chewing quan quan aya, and burning tar at night to purify the air. Physicians that work behind counters, they used bloodletting, leaching, purging, and mercury consumption. Hmm. This usually sped up the deaths rather than prevent them or slow them down. In 1812, mercury caused the death of many military men. There were so many deaths due to that, actually, due to their treatment rather than the actual disease. During the public health crisis, Marie Laveau, obviously, she nursed many of the sick. And it's possible her healing methods were more close to the folk variety, that side of healing. The 
let's say, herbal teas, soups, massages, baths, prayers and energy giving methods. What's important to note, Louisiana Van Van, which is, by the way, Vervain, was grown in the courtyard of the New Orleans Pharmacy for medicinal purposes because Vervain was found to be a cure for yellow fever. You would express the juice of the leaves and in small doses it would be given three times a day along with an enema and that was said to be the cure for yellow fever. Even in the most threatening stages, hardly any deaths were reported to occur when Vervain was used in this way. I have Vervain, I grow Vervain, um, amongst other things. It's actually hung up in my shed right now, drying out, and I'm sure it's ready near enough to... But I have to wear gloves when I'm doing it. So Vervain's very important, and I know it's classed as toxic now and, and is poisonous, but it's not really... It's more about the usage of it. Anything is poisonous. Anything is toxic when ingested or taken in at large amounts. Just remember that. When the cholera struck in Louisiana, um, New Orleans, sorry, mainly central, I think, um, Marie was credited for saving hundreds of lives. With the cholera came cramps, but by the time these cramps came, it was said that within 10 minutes, if the person wasn't relieved of the cramps, they would die within 10 minutes. And her remedy reportedly did the trick. It was said she made a charm of brimstone, tar and feathers, lighting it under the noses of those who were sick, and it would immediately alleviate the cramps. Many other women, like Marie, they had exceptional herbal abilities, curative abilities that were successful, the success rate of these women was magical to those inflicted by the diseases. Of course it was. Doctors were envious and rather curious regarding the knowledge of the women and the power of their skills. Soups, the teas, the massages, the oils, the amulet, everything they wanted to know. And these women were of the highest people. They were the best healers. Yet they were called deadly, secretive. Um, they were demonised. They were held in dread. They were the cause of the work of the devil, of course, <laughs> you know. Um, and though on the surface, the Catholic Church seemed to accept voodoo, underneath, they did have the desire to completely wipe out voodoo. Um, pro yeah, Protestants were the same. They did not like voodooists. They thought they were wild and a shame. It was a shameful life. And the Pentecostal rebuke anything that is spiritual or even, you know, voodoo, but anything that's to do with herbs. They believe illness comes from doing herbal practice. This was back then, not now. I don't know so much now. I'm not really looked into it. I'm talking about back then. Um, that is what they believed. But these women, they brought the best remedies. They had amazing knowledge. And the amount of people that they saved was, was damn amazing. It was good. And Marie had that knowledge and she brought it and she used it and she saved people's lives. For God's sake, she gave people a place to rest when they had nowhere. I mean, I'm just like, wow, baffled. That's just, what an amazing woman, guys. What an amazing woman to do that. It just touches my heart. I just love it. 
But the problem is as well, isn't it, is let's look at what's happening right now. When are they going to let the herbalists come in and teach the pharmaceutical people? When are they going to do that? Because, let's be honest, it's probably already on this earth what we need. We probably grow it or are growing it or could grow it. But it'll never be looked at, will it? Because then the pharmacies will lose money. And if the pharmacies lose money, the herbalists take over. And they don't they don't want that. They don't want that. I'm sorry, but it's true. There's too much money in the pharmaceutical area. There's, there's just too much. That's why doctors are so easily give out these opioids and things. They want you to be addicted to them because it keeps you coming back for more. That's my theory on that, but... That's just my theory and my personal views. Please don't take that as fact. It's just my personal idea of things is that the herbal, the the more herbal methods are probably the best and unfortunately they will never be looked into as much as all this other crap they shove in there. Um, but like I say, that's my personal view. Anyway, I'm going to leave this episode here because it's nearly been like 19 minutes and that's long enough. Thank you for listening. I shall see you in the next episode and many blessings. Welcome everyone. Welcome back to my channel. So we're on Marie Laveau. Um, this is probably I think part five we're on now. Um, let's look at different court cases and things like that. Um, we'll uh, go from there, I suppose. Marie was often placed at the stand um at court, yet she never unsealed her lips. Not even when she was threatened with prison. Only when families were cruel to their dependents and they were mean and arrogant, that's when she would tell, tell the courts all she knew. Um, she would give out information that brought disgrace upon those. But they would have to be particularly mean and, and arrogant people. She wouldn't do it to just anybody. Generally, she kept, she kept her lips very sealed. Only to the mean did she give her wrath, and you did not want to be part of that, trust me. Stoughton Spectator and General Advisor, June 21st, 1881, states, The Marie Laveau legend has stories about her knack for winning court cases. And this is sort of one of the stories... And it's the one that's in the start and spectator from June 21st, 1881. And it's regarding the house that we talked about, the little cottage that she grew up in, that all her family grew up in, um, but on St Anne Street. So let's all look at this story. Marie supposedly gained the cottage through a court case. The other story is that a gentleman approached Marie begging for help. His son was accused of raping a young woman of noble standing with money. The boy's family had no standing and was without money. And he told Marie he would lose no matter what and begged her for help. He offered her the cottage and any money that he could put together. Of course, Marie was very excellent, very business savvy. And she had faith too, which is very important. So she said to the man that she would, but first she wanted to speak with the young boy and his attorney. 
Now, when we say young boy, young man, we could mean someone um, who is over 18. It doesn't necessarily mean someone at under that age, just so we're clear on that. Um, this could be a young man at 16. It could be a young man at 17, 18. We don't know. Just a young man. After Marie spoke to the boy and the attorney, Marie came to the conclusion it was actually the girl's father accusing the boy of rape and not the girl. It was unrequited love. It was that standing, wasn't it, that he's from somewhere of importance and she is not. So therefore the parents were not going to allow it. She worked out that that's the kind of thing she was dealing with. And Marie believed the young man was innocent because the young lady did love him too. So, it was more of a class disliking of the father. So she agreed to take their offer. And it is said she made three grigri bags, placing all of them very strategically in the courtroom before the trial. And as with all cases that Marie took, she obviously won. The boy was found innocent. And this is obviously an untrue story. It is just a story because... The cottage in which she grew up, St Anne's Cottage, her grandmother bought and built with her own, you know, blood and sweat. And it went, it stayed in the Lavo family, family for generations. So we know there it's just a story, but it shows how fantastic the influence of folklore can be. And the fact that it can, like, come up with these stories just from the fact that Marie won court cases because she did win every court case she won every case it's actually rich she won them all and that became attributed to a conjuring to a magic yet let's look at it from a different perspective for just a minute I am not saying she was not a voodoo queen I truly believe she was a voodoo queen um, but her core was catholicism so but I do believe that. However, we need to look at the facts. And the facts are that Marie was quite influential in dealing with the regal clients. And she had a lot of information regarding them. She knew things, secrets, that people didn't want to get out. They didn't want that to be out there. It would bring shame and disgrace, wouldn't it? But more importantly... She actually had insight into the personal lives of all the judges that were in power. She knew things about them that others did not. She had interacted with their family and their wives and got all of their secrets. I am pretty sure this played... <coughs> Sorry guys, the dogs went off on one because someone made a noise. That's all it takes. Anyway, so we have to consider the fact that she did, she knew all their secrets, even the judges. She'd been part of their lives and structured into their family. So, I mean, you know, back in those days, it would definitely be a way of um, winning cases, I would say. But she was well known as well for visiting those that were condemned, condemned to death. And she would offer spiritual assistance, aiding them to release their sins so they could meet their saviour when leaving this life. Prisoners considered her visits a blessing and she could even get a pardon to change their fate. The parish prison was a slave institution where they they sort of waited and um, it was quite sorrowful really. I'm not going to go into detail but let's just say it wasn't the best of circumstances was it? Um, they would wait on death row and 
the worst of the worst was said to reside there. I believe it's still meant to be the case today. The worst of the worst reside there. Yet this place was normal for Marie to visit. Very normal indeed. May 1871. She became involved in the case of Pedro Abriel and Vincent Bayumay. She arrived at the prison dressed in white with flowers, candles and decorations in hand. For three days, she constructed a powerful altar of penance for the men, decorating them. There was more than one altar, decorating them in traditional New Orleans voodoo style. The three-tier altars she constructed were describing an article, and this was by the New Orleans daily Picloo, or Picayune, I believe it's called Picayune. Anyway, for more than 20 years, an old woman of colour, has come to their cell, preparing altars for them. This woman is Marie Laveau, better known as the priestess of the Voodoo's. Arriving at the prison yesterday morning, she proceeded at once to prepare an altar for the men. This consisted of a box about three feet square. Above that are three paramethyl boxes, rising to a small apex upon which is placed a small figure of the Virgin. The entire altar is draped in white, and at each end of the shelving is a vase of green and white artificial flowers. Beside those vase of flowers are a smaller vase of pink and white camillas. In the centre rests a prayer book in Spanish and framed in gold. Leaning against the altar and hung around the cell are pictures of saints. A muslin cloth is embroidered and closed, the aspect of the altar is simply beautiful. Um, the reason this article is of importance that was written is because it's the only article ever giving us an insight into how her voodoo altars were constructed. At the time of Marie Laveau, of course, now you can find many, but we're talking about the time is when she did them. That's how they were constructed. They were very much symmetrical. Um, they were parametrical, honest, just like beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, I'm sure there'll be some people that still do them like this. I'm sure that they will. But yeah, these were stunning. They're still built this way, um, even with some minor changes today, but they are still built that way. The Spanish book in the middle was most likely a, probably a Catholic missile or a spiritualist prayer book, as both religions were very present at the time, so they could have even been intertwined. No one knows what, what was in that book. They just know that it was Spanish. So, yeah, that's what she did regarding court and regarding the justice of others and how she built her altars. I don't like leaving them too long, and sometimes I can do that by accident. So, I'll leave this one here. Please hit that like and subscribe because it really helps. Thanks for listening and many blessings. Hi guys, welcome back to my channel. Please hit the like, it really helps, it's free. Subscribe and share. I would like to grow, even if not monetized, I would still like to grow. Please bear that in mind. Thank you very much. Let's look at Marie Laveau II. Much confusion over this, guys. I've looked, I've researched, there's so much confusion. Now, do you remember at the beginning of our episodes where we discussed the daughters, uh, the children, I suppose, that she had 
with Jacques Perry, which were, you know, that was a husband. But yet there's no records of them and there is talk of lost records of death certificates and such. Well, when she was with Christophe, she had two more daughters. Marie Philemon, or Philemon, depends how you want to pronounce it. She apparently stepped into the shoes of Marie Laveau. So it's said by many. Her other daughter was called Marie Eloise. And she was born in 1827, but she also died in 1862. Marie Philemon, born 1836, died 1897. Those are their middle names, by the way. Um, not their last names. So it would be Marie Philemon Laveau, you know, that's how it went. Um, so Marie Ella Louise died and therefore we assume... We assume she couldn't continue in her mother's footsteps. In the Louisiana's Writers' Reviews, interviews took place naming Marie Philemon, not Marie Eloise. She's not named in there. Marie Philemon, Globiant, was often referred to as Madame La Gendre, spelt quite a few ways, Mantead. She was a devout Catholic like her mother, but apparently had no interest in voodoo, making her unlikely to be a successor. Though, their stories. But if there was a Marie II, it would be Marie Philemon. She lived with her mother, so she was probably at least schooled in voodoo. And at the time, voodoo was cloaked under Catholicism, so maybe she kind of learnt one that was both of those that's what Marie did, didn't she? She incorporated both, so we just don't know. We don't know for a fact, um, and we don't know about the social things that went on in their house. I mean, it was before her mum's death, it was very discreet, and there's not much known about Marie's childhood, let alone a daughter's childhood. It was kept that way for a reason, and I think that's pretty nice, you know. It's hard to keep things secretive now, isn't it? You know, it's... It's so hard and I see it, you see it on the news and everywhere about celebrities and their children and things like that. So to be able to keep them cloaked and what happened when they were little cloaked is, is quite a really, well, it interests me. I think it's lovely. She was a very devoted daughter though, was, um, both her daughters were, but she, she was definitely, and the papers do state that she did deny any involvement in voodoo and denied that her mother was a voodoo queen. It's said many are quick to put out that Marie's work was only due to her being a Catholic in aid of stamping out the voodoo involvement. Then on the other hand, Marie II has also been called quite a few other names. She was called crazy, wild, the voodoo queen. She was out of her mind. She was like her mother who sacrificed animals, drinking their blood, performing orgies and rituals by the Louisiana swamps, running a brothel too. <laughs> Apparently, she wasn't as warm as her mother either, and some called her a terrible woman, worse than her mother. Of course, just understand, these are stories, fictional stories. Marie II was reported by a woman called Martha Gray. So, <clears throat> whether this is true or not, we don't actually know, but anyway... Martha Gray did report that she knew of some insight into into the house and she did 
state there was an altar with red lamps. The red lamps alone would get you indicated as a voodoo worshipper, a voodoo woman, as they were very much uh, attributed to the Petra spirits, the Petra. Depends how you pronounce it. So it's P-E-T-R-A, and some pronounce it Petra, Petra, Petra. It's, it's honestly Petra. Uh, it depends how you want to pronounce it. And those are spirits of voodoo and they are sort of the fire. They're the fire element, I guess, if you want to look at it like that. Um, because lamps were often colour-coordinated to spirits. Not necessarily meaning destruction, though it could be new creation and things, you know. People obviously think fire's destructive. Well, actually, it's not. It's purifying. But, yeah. Marie II is said to have drowned in 1987 while crossing the flooded lake Poncha Train, according to the law. There's also other stories too, and one of these stories is fantastical. Listen this. There was a very bad storm. This storm carried her away in her cabin, and she stood upon her cabin and refused to be rescued. She did not want to be rescued. She said the storm had come to take her. She was going with the storm and that was how it was going to be. And as the storm took her in her cabin and wished her down this lake, she was indeed rescued with resistance. And apparently only when her bare foot touched upon the other side of the lake did the lightning, thunder, wind and rain cease to stop. It did not stop until her bare foot rested upon land. It's quite an interesting story, fantastical story, in fact. She did live in the same cottage as her mother. She lived with her, mo her mother up until her death, and she raised her own children there. Um, Marie Laveau is referred to as Madame Laveau, where her daughter is Mademoiselle Vaux. It's just to separate the mother and the daughter, that is all. There's so many conflicting stories regarding Marie II. Some even think none of her daughters took on the voodoo queen. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that they never did, nor did they ever want to carry on the work from the mother. Um, it's also coming to question that articles simply got it wrong altogether. Listen this. This is very interesting indeed. Well, I find it interesting. So according to some articles... There was a misidentification at rituals and in fact it was another voodoo queen taking part that looked similar to Marie Laveau. Lavena Latour, that was her name, is said to be possible that Lavena Latour was indeed the voodoo queen and it was never Marie Laveau at all and papers simply got them mixed up. But being women that they were, they would not go and rectify this. They would just let them speculate and leave it as it was. Five years roughly after her death, after her husband's death, sorry, Christophe, Marie became ill. So five years after Christophe died, Marie did become ill and she was more than often bedridden. Her health deteriorated and she aged until she wasn't able to leave her bed at all. And according to some news articles, she spent her days lying in an old, large, warm bed in the front room of her little house that she never left. And you can have, sort of see that in your head, I think. Have visions of her, but being surrounded, you know? I, I can anyway, I definitely can. Of course, her room had an altar 
and saintly pictures and crosses. It's important to note Christoph left her financially destitute. He died without a will and in state of dissolvency. The civil war followed his death, though things changed around her. It's said that there was still much activity going on in the Lavu home. She continued allowing family members to remain living there. She welcomed anyone in need. She continued to give out advice and do her acts of mercy. Whatever fun she managed to acquire, she shared with others when they needed. She was not a wealthy woman who made, obviously, loads of money from voodoo. That was, she wasn't. That's myth. That's myth. She shared everything with people who needed it. She lived by her means. Now, I don't know about you, but it's changed my whole view on Marie Laveau having to delve into her history and looking at her from whom she really was. I see her as no matter what she practised, she was such she was an angel. She was like an angel. She was doing angel's work. I mean, I I honour her. Ayanna Marie Laveau, I think she was an amazing woman, do you not? 1886, journalist George Cable published what is believed to be the last, it's the last but the first hand account of Marie Laveau. I once saw, in extreme old age, the famed Marie Laveau. She sat shaking with feebleness and ill in an old rocking chair. Her body bowed, her long grey witch's tressels hanging about her yellow shriveled neck. The queen of the voodoos. Three generations were helping. One could see now, her face drawn, aged and withered, was handsome and commanding, and still a faint shadow of departed beauty in the forehead, the spark of an old fire in the eyes that sunk in those glistening eyes. A fine aquiline nose, and a silent, woe-begun mouth. Beautiful description, isn't it? Her daughter was also present, a woman of some 70 years, and a most striking and majestic figure in features, statue, and bearing she was regal. June 15th, 1851. Marie Catherine Laveau died following a long illness. At her home on St Anne Street, her daughter Marie Philemon by her side. Her death certificate does state she died of natural causes associated with diarrhoea. She was offered a good funeral, attained by the diverse crowd of people, rich and poor. She was buried in St Louis's cemetery, number one. That's, there's two cemeteries, we'll get there. She was buried in the first she was placed in the middle tomb. Not long after, the tomb became a pilgrimage site for voodoo practitioners and tourists. Two days after her death, the New Orleans Democrat printed her obituary. Two other articles were printed three days after her death by the Daily Picaloon, which tells and shows of her stark differences of her life and character as perceived by so many. Six articles in total were printed about her death. Marie Laveau's tomb and resting place are in the eldest cemetery of New Orleans. 
I'm going to leave that bit here, guys. That's uh, what we're going to finish with today because the next one gets more interesting, I can assure you. Pretty soon we'll be done with Marie's life, whether you want to learn about her magic. I'm not sure I'm willing to share that one. It's some pretty interesting stuff. Thanks for listening. Hi, guys. Welcome back to my channel. This is Marie Laveau continued, and this is, you know, we've now she's passed on. So we're on to sort of the cemetery, the area, I guess. And New Orleans, uh, built on swampland. It means that obviously the tombs were not underground. They were above ground because they didn't want the bodies to resurface and float away. What's important to note is back then, though, it usually meant that only the rich were putting these sorts of tombs and the poor was down. They were just putting a ground. Um, yeah. But, I, I mean, it's not like that now and it's not used like that now, but that's what it was back then. Only the elaborate crypts and tombs were for those of money. Marie, people came together to make sure she got a beautiful tomb, very decorative in works and sculptures. Um, there's adorned plots that are just beautiful and apparently they appear like little cities, hence the nickname Cities of the Dead or City of the Dead. These cemeteries, they attract a lot of visitors each year. Marie's gravesite is part of the New Orleans geography because it's a very powerful space and it turned into a pilgrim site. People from all over the world visit and interact over the years. Speculation, though, has been thrown about whether she actually does reside there in that particular plot. This is because of the vault in St. Louis Cemetery Number 2 where locals insist she is buried, um, and I do believe it does have a name, a name called uh, The Tomb of Widowed Paris, which, if you remember, she was Widow Paris after Jacques Paris was assumed dead. Um, the locals insist that is where she's buried. It's really important to note that factual evidence, the obituary states, she is in Tomb 1, Cemetery 1, she is in that tomb. It's also said that it is actually possible her family moved her body from Cemetery 1 to the Wishing Vault at Cemetery 2. But there's no records at all for that vault or Cemetery Number 2 in that space in particular. There's no records to say he was actually buried there. But it's known as the widower of Paris's vault, the grave vault area so I'm not sure but there's no actual evidence the obituary does state that she's in tomb one um cemetery one to that the middle tomb so I you know these are probably just legends I'm not sure there's other le legends as well that she was moved somewhere else there's also a legend of the unmarked grave in cemetery two with nothing but crosses on it and offerings voodoo offerings that are left there I mean they are left at one and two but there's an unmarked grave at number two where Looking at it, looks like it's a Marie site, but it's an unmarked grave. It has nothing on it. So, you know, who knows? But the, the obituary, the evidence states she's just laid to rest in Cemetery 1 in the middle tomb. Remember, there are others buried around her because they couldn't afford. So during, I mean, this is when she had money, though. We have to remember as well that she was okay for money when Christophe was around, but as soon as Christophe died... He left her destitute. She was fine when he was there, but when he left, he left her destitute. That's why others ended up paying for her tomb. Yet she'd paid for so many others to be laid around her. 
So, yeah, we find that interesting. Because then you've got the story of, well, if others paid for her elaborate tomb, was it just a, a basic tomb that was paid for? That's why they laid the others around it, you know? And the actual funeral cost wasn't paid for. So it brings about a bit of speculation there to actually understanding it, doesn't it? It's hard to note. During the 1980s um, was when the site was seen as a place to bring people to visit, you know. This is when it became sort of a tourist attraction and you had tourist guides and things. They had the gift of the gab. So that's why so many stories emerged from their tales, from these tourist people tales. And all this changed, unfortunately, on December the 24th. 2013 not so far back guys there was a post and it was on facebook um and i do believe her name is dorothy morrison she's an occult writer she's a very esteemed occult writer of a disturbing uh, discovery that she made someone had painted on marie's tomb pastel pink and there was quite disgust in that and she made the request for the person to be found who had actually done it. You see, the tombs in that cemetery were maintained by family members. So many of those graves now and tombs and stuff, they are actually orphaned. No one maintains them. Um, the last family member buried, apparently, was in 1957 that was linked back to Marie Laveau. So since then, no one's been responsible for taking care of the tomb. Um, as a result... It's quite often they go without restoration. Um, so it's it's quite sad, but yeah. And there was very, very much a spark of, oh, that's that's so disgusting and how dreadful. But if we look at pink as a colour in voodoo, it, it's um, actually quite symbolic and it, it means nothing short of true honour and true friendship and true love and a coming, toge a coming together of the community. So some saw it as a positive thing and some saw it as a bad thing. So after this, and because the graves were obviously not being upkept because they were orphaned, many of the people were dead, this brought about, um, I do believe it was a, what's it called? Save Our Cemeteries. It's what was brought together, it was formed so that Marie's tomb could have restoration and it was restorated and revealed 2014 on Halloween Day. Mr Barrett brought a story. Um, this is a story forwarded, but apparently Mr Barrett believes this story could be true, you know. Um, whether it is or not, we don't know. So let's say, I'm not going to mention names, but someone wanted the tomb to be cut off from any access. And this is what he was petitioning for, to completely cut off the tomb from any access of people, no worshippers, no, no way to honour her. He woke up the next morning with his bedroom full of snakes. And after that, he encountered a lot of cottonmouths wherever he went, including apparently one turning up in his fridge. Yeah, it's a story. There are many stories like it, um, but I do find them interesting. The cemetery itself was cut off uh, from public access, as we know altogether and you can only visit Marie's grave now and it requires you to have a tour guide and probably pay a lot of money which is sad because she wouldn't agree with that um 
looking at Marie as a person, I don't think she'd agree with that. I think she would want people to be able to visit and honour her on their own terms, but it is what it is. Now, apparently, um, it's said that the very beginning, many women would go and they would put three cross marks on Marie's tomb by using broken red bricks from nearby graves. And these crosses are not apparently traditional in voodoo, some say. And it said tourists brought them. However, it's important to know that that couldn't be so because the women that traditionally would do this was before all this came about, the tourist attraction and stuff. Now, in Haitian voodoo, it's called, I think, if I pronounce it right, the Quashum, Quashum, or Quashuim, something like that. I can't get it right, but it's something like that is what a cross is called, the Quashum. And it signifies a point of power, but it's well known um, for Marie. Marie did. Marie marked the ground with three crosses near graves when she was doing conjuring work and then you would knock on the tomb three times. So it could be a tradition that even came from her, you know, putting crosses on graves is a sign of devotion and, and to honour her. But remember, it's now illegal. That's actually now called desecration of graves. Back then it wasn't, it was a way to honour her and show devotion. Now it's, you just get arrested for it because it's illegal. Because, you know, they control everything, that being one aspect. There are other stories of um, three beautiful ladies who would enter the um, Louisiana Cemetery and they would knock on each tomb as they passed three times. They would take red brick dust and they would put on Marie's tomb three red crosses. Then they would knock on her tomb three times. They would then whisper their intentions to Marie Laurent and leave her offerings and walk away. This is known as the wishing ritual. And of course it can't be done anymore because it is, you would have to get to the grave, you would have to put your brick dust on it, you, you know. It's not done like that anymore. It's done a very different way. But that is the basic of Marie's life. We have completed Marie's life. There is nothing on her childhood. There's nothing on her daughter's childhood. There is nothing to state she had a successor. There is really quite contradicting stories regarding what she practised. But she definitely incorporated both, is my belief. She incorporated both and I think she had true faith in both. Even whether she was the voodoo queen has been speculated. They believe it could have been this other woman and they were mixed up and women like them would not come forth and say, mm, you are wrong. Another point to make is please remember that many people would call Marie a woman of colour, which is not right. We don't use that now, but the point is she actually wasn't, believe it or not. So, well, many people state she wasn't a friend, state she wasn't. People that grew up around her state she wasn't. So it's interesting to look at it all and think, well, are we ever going to know the truth? I can't say we are, because it's long gone. I can only give you the evidence of what's there, which I've given you birth certificates, death certificates, times, and what's in obituaries. What's been written in news articles cannot be taken as fact, remember. The news is pretty good at mixing things up. 
whether you want to learn about voodoo magic is entirely up to you. I'll probably bring some. I'll probably bring some. Why not? Um, <laughs> it makes me chuckle just thinking about it because I'm thinking, oh, I can imagine these people trying this stuff. But yeah, things are done very differently now anyway. You know, things have been taken out, made illegal. So we have to do them differently. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our life. I'm sure you have. I know I have and I will look at it very differently um, after doing all the research that I've done. And, I, and I've handwritten everything that I've written. If anybody wants the information that I've handwritten, all you have to do is email me and you can have it. I'll send you the book, my handwritten books that I've done. I do not mind. I'll send them you for free. I Everything that I do, I handwrite. I take notes or I handwrite it in a way that it can be reused. So honestly, if anyone's interested in any handwritten works that I've done on any of my channels, ask me. Just ask me. I'm happy to send. Anyway, guys, many blessings. Thank you for being on this journey with me. And the next any Udo upload after this will be about magic. Thanks, guys.